As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Keith Law, welcome to episode 990 of the Keith Law Show. Very excited for my guest today, Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, who wrote a book called How to Be Yourself about social anxiety, which uh, I definitely have and have an actual diagnosis of anxiety disorder for listeners who don't know that. Uh, this book was fantastic. I learned a lot about, frankly, about myself and uh, more things I can do to be uh, better in the same social situations that uh, give me so much anxiety. First, a couple of programming notes. So I have been out seeing players. Uh, they've had some draft scouting notebooks and some minor league scouting notebooks recently. I will be uh, back on the road a little bit this weekend as well. Coming up this week, I'm going to have a just a short column on uh, looking at what some of the prominent rookies have done so far, a little bit of an overreaction theater, but we'll do a little bit of a dive into the data and also what I see just from watching some of these guys play, talking about guys in the big leagues. And then I'll shift to some draft stuff. So next week, that is the week of May 2nd. I think that's May 2nd. Some point that week, I think probably around May 5th, I will do an updated ranking of prospects for the draft. I'm going to spoil it a little bit. Drew Jones is still one. Cam Collier is number two. You can wait till the 5th to see the rest of it. And then I believe the week after that, I will probably do my first mock draft of the year. We've had these discussions with my editors. It's too early. It's still too early. We're still going to be more than two months away from the draft. But it also can't wait forever. And his, a lot of high schools are finishing and colleges are starting to wind down. At least their regular seasons can start having some conversations. There is some chatter about what certain teams might do. But I will say it still feels very early and that mock draft will be pretty speculative when we get into mid-June or so. I think the information will start to become a lot more concrete. For those of you who are interested in my board game content, I did review a new game called Skull Canyon Ski Fest for Paste Magazine this week. The post went up on the 25th. That is a very ticket-to-ride-like game with a little extra complexity, a little, some additional mechanics layered on top of it. So if you like Ticket to Ride but we're looking for something a little more challenging, I definitely recommend it. It's called Skull Canyon Ski Fest. It's a colon, Skull Canyon colon, dot, dot. 
Ski Fest. I also will have a piece going up, I believe, this week. It might even be up by the time you hear this podcast over at Polygon on the massive new game Arc Nova, which has been one of the most buzzed about new board games, maybe since Wingspan first hit the scene about three years ago. So keep an eye out for that. My guest today is Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. She's a clinical psychologist on the faculty at Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders and the author of the wonderful book, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. You can find her online at ellenhendrickson, H-E-N-D-R-I-K-S-E-N.com. Dr. Hendrickson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. So... Your book makes a really clear distinction between two terms that are often used interchangeably that I probably used interchangeably when trying to describe myself. So can you tell us what's the difference between what you define as socially anxious versus people who are just shy? Sure. So I make a distinction between capital S, what I call capital S social anxiety, which is like diagnosable social anxiety. And there are a lot of us, like 13% of Americans at some point in their lives will you know, reach the diagnostic criteria to, to, to have that illustrious label. <laughs> so, and that, you know, we're, it's one of the big boys. It's number three after depression and alcoholism in terms of diagnoses. So, however... 40% of us identify as shy, which is really just the colloquial way of saying socially anxious. It might not, you know, again, reach that like diagnostic level where it gets in the way of living the life we want to live. But, you know, almost half of us walk around with some sense of, uh, of, of, of self-consciousness on steroids. That said, also, 80% of us can relate to that feeling. We, we were either you know, shy as a little kid, we were super awkward as a teenager. So the vast majority of us can really you know, feel that in our bones when we say either socially anxious or shy. But uh, to, to more directly answer your question, uh, you know, shy is kind of the colloquial label. And if we want to move up that continuum to like painfully shy, that can often be the same thing as Again, capitalist social anxiety. Within the, I guess, really fairly early in the book as well, you also bring in the concept of introversion. Mm. And I know you have a, I've actually read Susan Cain's book, Quiet, um, which I think she blurbed your book and you mentioned it a few times earlier, which is also great because both of, the, both of these books help me better understand myself. Um, which is really useful because I'm still, despite my age, still learning and still sort of figuring out how best Aren't to... Aren't we all? Right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, probably doing more of it in my 40s than I did in my 20s or 30s, which I guess better late than never. But to, you know, in a, I'm in a job that requires me to be social. Mm -hmm. And that throws me in a lot of these situations where I am thrust among strangers or people I know, but not all that well, or where I often find I'm expected to, or I believe I am expected to be something. Sure. This is not realistic. We can, well, you get into this a lot in the book, but do you find that I'm thinking almost like a Venn diagram here of introversion and social anxiety, because they're not really the same thing. And I think before I read your book, I probably would have said they were pretty close, but it seems like there's some overlap, certainly. But again, they are not completely identical. Yeah, yeah. No, I like to describe it as kind of like um, apples and oranges or even sometimes kind of like apples and tennis balls. They are pretty different. So the introversion is an inborn trait. It's a, it's a personality trait that really gets at 
are tolerance for like social stimulation and mm-hmm. introverts are, you know, more easily overstimulated. You know, we, we need a lower level of kind of social stimulation to, to feel, you know, fulfilled or, you know, and then we can easily have our social battery be drained. Um, social anxiety is the heart of that is, is, is fear essentially. So there you can absolutely be a socially anxious introvert. I think, I think a lot of us think of social anxiety as just a more intense form of introversion, but, but that's not actually true. We can, we can separate those out. We can like take those two circles of the Venn diagram and, you know, move them apart a little bit because we can absolutely also be a socially anxious extrovert. So for example, uh, the examples I like to use are there might be somebody who loves getting up on stage, but you know, but worries that the audience is going to hate them. Or somebody might really want to go mingle with their colleagues, you know, after work, you know, go to the bar or something, but worry that no one really likes them. So it's it's absolutely possible to to get a lot of energy and stimulation from social situations, but to really be worried about them as well. Also, we could be a non-socially anxious introvert. So for example, we might, you know, go to a party, but get overloaded pretty quickly and decide to step out early, but it's because we're feeling drained, not because we're feeling, you know, scared and overwhelmed and want to go hide in the bathroom. So, so there's, there's, uh, there's really four boxes that we can fall into in that, uh, socially anxious and introverted versus extroverted, um, uh, orthogonal plane. That was super nerdy, but that's okay. <laughs> On this podcast, that is complete, not just allowed, but encouraged. All right. By the way, for me, it is never the bathroom at a party. I find the books. Oh, oh you have a sure. library. I'm just going to stand here and study the, the books yeah. for a while. And yeah. actually, no one questions that. Oh, you're inter- oh, are you a reader? Oh, yes. Yes, I am. As it turns out, I am. And I can usually find something there to occupy me until sort of let the battery recharge a little bit. And I yeah. feel like it can yeah. re-enter polite society after that. Absolutely. And I, I want to emphasize to everybody who you know either hides in the bathroom or studies the books or goes and you know, pets the host dog or cat, you know, mm. or like goes out in the balcony and scrolls through Twitter. Totally fine. Absolutely step out, but then step back in. So it's, it's you know, totally go ahead and recharge those batteries. There is nothing wrong with that. And I think it's only when we leave out of fear and you know, like just leave without coming back, that then our anxiety gets underscored in terms of, wow, that was really dangerous. That like, that was not a good situation. And or, yeah, I really couldn't handle that. Those two lies of anxiety get reinforced when we overtly avoid. Whereas if we, you know, kind of just step back in and out and take a break, totally fine. Because because we're, we're, we're not underscoring those two lies. We're saying, you know, I can do this. I just need a little break. Or like, these people are fine. I'm just getting a little low on my battery. So I want to follow up on that, which kind of leads into the next question, too. Sure. You talk a lot about the capital R, the, the reveal within mm, the book. Mm, and mm-hmm. that builds on that what you're just talking about there, this fear and uncertainty yes. that people who are socially anxious have about m- many of these situations. So what is it? What What is the reveal? And what is that that heart of the fear that socially anxious people do experience? Yeah. So, um, so those of us who struggle with social anxiety often, so there's a misperception or I want to, you know, emphasize perception 
that there's something wrong with us, that we are awkward or we're stupid or we're incapable or we're a failure, like all these really harsh words. And we can get into perfectionism and self-criticism later as well. But so there's this idea that somehow we're inadequate and that unless we work really hard to cover that, it's going to be revealed to everyone around us. It will become obvious that really, you know, we're we're stupid and no one wants us here or whatever, you know, insert your, you know, the harsh criticism here. Um, and so we will engage in either avoidance and that could be broken down into both overt or covert avoidance. So overt meaning we just don't show up, you know, like we call in sick on the day we're supposed to give the presentation. We tell, we bail on our friends, like right before we're supposed to go to brunch. Um, we just don't show up or we don't answer the phone. That's a big one. Or we avoid covertly. So that's, you know, that's the, that, that could be the stepping in and out, but it could also be, for instance, um, like if we are out and about, but we are sure to wear sunglasses and put an earbud so that nobody talks to us or like avoiding eye contact during a conversation is another big one. Like it, it makes, it makes us feel safer internally, but it will often send a message, uh, that we're unfriendly or don't want to talk. It can, it can backfire. So we work really hard to try to keep that reveal from happening and we'll either engage in overt or covert avoidance. The overt meaning that we don't show up, we call in sick, we bail on our friends, or the covert avoidance meaning that we might, uh, you know, walk around with earbuds and sunglasses on or avoid eye contact. So we show up, but we, we kind of stay hidden in a way. That sounds extraordinarily familiar to me, especially when I was younger, before I was di I got a diagnosis of just general anxiety disorder. I could list, I'm not going to, because I would rather not think about them, but plenty of times where I just didn't show up, actually. Of course. Oh, Often sure. at the last second, because yeah, yeah, I would yeah. just get too close to it and be like, I, I, I can't do this. Uh -huh. I can't do this. And it, which ranged from, actually, it was probably less common with social events for me, but it was anything public speaking, which I do all the time now. It's kind of amazing to me that I used to have a hard time with this. And now it's like actually one of the things I would say drives less of that fear for me. I can do that. I can. And I, this is probably something you'll relate to because you've also, I assume you've done book events, book uh -huh, signings. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I'm fine standing up in front of the room. I have talked to, you know, I remember I did one with uh, another baseball author, Jay Jaffe. We did one at Politics and Prose in DC. There were 130 people there. I had no problem at all. It was afterwards yes. when I was having one-on-one -on -one conversations yes. with readers, which I don't dislike. Yeah. I like I like my readers, most mm -hmm. of them. <laughs> but that was where the anxiety came in. I was completely fine until it was over. And I was like, oh God, I have to talk to people now. Yeah, no, I think that I think that is really, really common, actually. So when we are, you know, up in front of the audience or we're giving the presentation or we're in our you know, job capacity, then we have a role to play. We have some structure. We know what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, there's, you know, there are clearer rules. Like, you know, this is how you give up public presentation. You know, this is what you should not do. And so the, there's, there's more of a, uh, a sense of structure and mission. Whereas then as soon as we step off the stage and have to go mingle, the, it gets a lot fuzzier, right? There are so many different ways we could screw up. We could offend somebody. We could say the wrong thing. Like it's all kind of improv. Like you don't know who you're going to talk to. Like, absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, that when we get 
when we're up there as, you know, like for me, like Ellen Hendrickson, the author or the you know, clinical psychologist, like I, I know what I'm supposed to do. But when I'm out in the world or the, you know, go back into the audience and kind of talk just as Ellen Hendrickson, that is harder to do. So I totally relate to that. I, I love that, that I think of myself in that same, with that same dichotomy. I mm-hmm. have often joked with my wife, for example, there's public Keith. Mm, That's mm. different than, you know, husband, dad, stepdad, et cetera. Like they're they're to me, they're two different people. And sure. it's not that I want to act differently. I'm not trying to present a different face to the world, but it's that I'm on. Suddenly yeah. there's yeah. a switch that has to get flipped yep. and I'm on. And then yep. I do experience the thing you described earlier and that mm-hmm. Susan Cain described in Quiet also where I get really tired afterwards. For a yeah. long time, I had a hard time understanding why am I physically tired? I didn't do anything. All mm-hmm. I did was stand around and talk. Right. Why do right. I feel so tired? Often to the point where it's like, I got to eat something. Like all of a sudden, <laughs> like how did I just burn through calories doing nothing more than talking? But for whatever reason, whatever biological process is going on, that's how I feel afterwards. And both of your books made that clear. Like, oh, no, no, this is an actual, you're not making this up. This is an actual thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I relate to having to be on. So this here, this is a nice segue actually into perfectionism. So mm-hmm. those of us who struggle with social anxiety often also have a dash of perfectionism as well. And I want to clarify that perfectionism is not necessarily about striving to be perfect. I think perfectionism is a bit of a misnomer. Yeah. It's more like feeling never good enough. So when we have to turn on, there's the sense that we're like performing a little bit. That, that we have to adhere to these either you know, external or maybe internal rules of like, I got to sound smart. I have to be entertaining. Um, I can't be awkward. Uh, I have to carry the weight of this conversation. Um, I can't offend anybody. There's a lot of very, you know, rigid rules. Okay. So that takes a lot of energy to try to adhere to. Okay. So we can do two things around that. One is we can take a look at those rules and say, is, like, is this even realistic? Because if we're giving ourselves zero, zero wiggle room, like if we're not allowed to make any mistakes, quick segue, like, or, not, or quick digression, like, you know, perfectionists often will think kind of all or nothing. And that can be a superpower because, you know, we, we push things really hard. We do things really well. We knock it out of the park a lot of the time. But then when something goes wrong, it knocks us from all to nothing. So we work really hard to try to stay at all. But that's not really realistic. So if we can go into situations thinking less in the mindset of like, can't screw up, mm-hmm. gotta make gotta not make any mistakes to, you know, probably 85% of what I say will be decently intelligent and like probably 15% of of what I say will be probably like, will be not as articulate (laughs) as I wish it were, or I'll stumble over my words or I'll have a brain fart. Like that's more realistic. Like it's still actually a pretty high standard, but if we give ourselves even just a little bit of wiggle room that can lower the pressure and make us feel like the stakes aren't so high that like our, our standing in the world isn't contingent upon our performance after you know this book signing or whatever. So, so that's one thing. Another thing is that you know performance can be measured very quantitatively. Like we we did well, we didn't. Like it's, there's there's a, a sense of achieving. A lot of 
people who struggle with perfectionism are also high achievers. And so we're, we're used to kind of like trying to get the grade or trying to get the good performance review or, you know, whatnot. Okay. So then what we can do there is to try to take some eggs out of that performance basket mm -hmm. and shift them into a couple of baskets that are way more qualitative. So we can shift them into connection. Let me try to connect with these these people that I'm talking to. Let me get to know them and like listen closely to them or look at their face or like listen to the questions they're asking and like try to share some of myself. So we can we can try to shift out of that performance and try to connect. And we can also shift some eggs out of the performance basket into enjoyment. Am I having a nice time? Am I enjoying my, you know, my listeners or my readers or just my friends or my colleagues, whoever? Like, let's, let's to, to focus on both the, the connection and the enjoyment, which inherently are much more qualitative, harder to measure. Like, am I doing well at connection? Am I doing well at enjoyment? And so that can also take off some of the pressure. So there we go. Yep. <laughs> two, two, two tips to chip away at perfectionism. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Probably my favorite single detail from the book and the one that I keep coming back to most often, which I think does tie to the perfectionism, sure. is what you call post-event processing, which I not only do I do that all the time, but I went to a game uh, for my job on uh, Friday afternoon and saw some scouts, saw some scouts I knew really well and some I knew a little bit less well and had a completely innocuous conversation with one of them, guy I know very well. And found myself on the way home replaying the entire yes, conversation. Yes. Should have said that. I shouldn't yes. have said. Yep. And totally. I was like, oh my God, I'm doing the thing that Ellen said in her book. I'm, and I, I knew what it was, <laughs> right? I'm looking at myself then from the outside, like you're yeah. post event processing, aren't you? So to explain, obviously, I know what this is now, sure. but explain what that is. And again, sort of what is, what, what do we do about this too? Because I find myself very, very much getting caught in this loop of doing it again and again. And I, I always, I, I assume this is true for everyone. I always come out worse in the post-event processing. It's much more catastrophic when I redo it. Totally, totally, totally. Oh, so yeah. And if this wasn't clear already by the fact that I say we, like I'm on the same journey as mm -hmm. you. Like they say, write the book you need. So like, that's why I wrote yeah, right. the book. Okay, anyway. So I, I'm, and your, your listeners can't see me, but I'm nodding and nodding yeah. and nodding. So yeah, anyway, so post-event processing. Yes, okay. So post-event processing is, um, is replaying the low light reel of our social interaction 
after the fact. It's, it's essentially kicking ourselves for like, you know, why did I say that? Or, oh, that was stupid. Or, or it's, it's, it's focusing in on the flaws. And again, that does tie back to perfectionism because those of us who struggle with perfectionism focus on flaws. Again, that can be a superpower because we are very detail oriented. And so that often will lead to really high quality work, like doing things really well. But the flip side is that we tend to focus on on flaws, like things bother us. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, when we're post event processing, we will ask ourselves questions like, why did I say that? Or like, what was I thinking? And these questions are meant to be rhetorical. But some part of our inner critic will answer them and we'll mm-hmm. say something like because you're an idiot <laughs> or like, or like because. <laughs> isn't that always the answer right exactly yes. right so yeah and my and our inner critics are you know can be can come in different flavors like um i've noticed that for men it tends to be a, be a pretty harsh label calling like because you're an idiot or because you're stupid for me my inner critic tends to be like an old lady who clutches her pearls like that's inappropriate what are you doing you know? yeah, right. <laughs> so 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 people's inner critics can be really different and okay but the inner critic will often kind of work beneath the surface it especially for those of us who struggle with perfectionism it'll be pretty automatic and and sometimes kind of quiet and so paradoxically what we can do is to try to bring the, the answers to those rhetorical questions or other criticisms of ourselves to the surface to take it out of automatic mode and put it into like manual mode and listen to how we're talking to ourselves because it's so harsh like we would never talk to our children that way we would never talk to our colleagues that way and so so what I find to be helpful, like, so self-compassion, you know, this comes out of Kristen Neff's research at the University, University of Texas, is she says to talk to yourself as you would talk to a good friend. Sometimes that works. So, but I don't know, like, maybe this is just me, but sometimes I'll have a hard time extending that compassion to mm-hmm. myself. But I can sometimes imagine someone else, like how a friend might talk to me. Or like, you know, how like a, a good support person or, you know, like maybe like my husband or like some someone like how would how would they kind of talk me down and say like, you, like, man, like that was that was really hard or like you did a great job or like I, I can imagine that like I'll, I'll have I'll have somebody else like <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, uh, talk back to my inner critic. And sometimes that can work. So to again, to to take that inner critic off of automatic, mm-hmm. put it into manual, listen to how we talk to ourselves, and then try try to try to talk back to it. So that's that's one. The thing that I find to be helpful is again to get back to this all or nothing thinking that we often want to think of ourselves as as good. We want to think of ourselves as smart or mm-hmm. capable or competent, and when we say something or do something that doesn't solidly fall into that category. Again, that all or nothing thinking knocks us into like, well, I'm an idiot or I'm incapable or I don't deserve to be here, like imposter syndrome or something like that. So what we can do is try to take it out of just that all or nothing and try to start thinking of ourselves as like, I'm a smart person who sometimes says dumb things. I'm a good person who sometimes accidentally does something offensive. I'm a kind person who sometimes is thoughtless, like, I got stuff figured out, and I'm still seeking. So to try to, to, to bring those buckets a little closer together, 
and to to try to overlap that Venn diagram a little bit and again allow ourselves a little bit of wiggle room to make some mm-hmm. mistakes and to not do things you know perfectly because of course we're we're human and that's part of the tax of being alive right is to is to screw up or to 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 do things um, that were dumb or thoughtless or that we wish we hadn't done but I think that is just the price we pay for being in the world. And, and it's, it also connects us to everybody else. Who among us has not said something they wish they hadn't said? Who among us doesn't have, you know, cringe attacks where we're like folding laundry and somehow like a memory from fifth grade pops back into our head and like makes us like physically wince. Like all Are you, these... are you just watching me? Have you been like <laughs> in my house watching me? Because that is so true. So and true. it's things from, I'm 48, things from, 40 plus years ago 100%. that I still remember. Yeah, oh, it's only yeah. the bad, it's almost only the bad only stuff. The bad so I don't, no, nobody has the, the, well, you know, it wouldn't be a cringe attack, but the, hey, here's a great memory from second grade. No, I don't get those. Yeah, no, it's always the memory of like when we farted in front of all the right, fifth grade. Right. Or like when, like in college, we meant to say circumscribed and said circumcised. You know, it's yeah. always something like that, right? So, yeah, but like there, like again, that everybody has those. Like that is just a, like it's it's the fact that uh, things are so common that they have a name. You know, cringe attacks. I yes. think is actually quite comforting. The fact that all these you know thoughts and experiences, like post event processing or capital S social anxiety, is so common it has a name. Is I find that very comforting anyway. But um, okay, so here let's <laughs> we're all over the place. So tangent on cringe attacks. So there, that that also is the perfectionism because it's the expecting ourselves to never do anything wrong or accepting or expecting ourselves to not do anything cringy or weird or whatever. And so I think um, our it often happens in a moment where we're being kind of mindless. Like for me, cringe attacks often ha- often happen in the shower. Um, it can happen like when we're folding laundry or washing dishes or when our mind is generally quiet. And then our brain is like, would you like to see this embarrassing right. memory from fifth grade? And you're I like, didn't know. Yeah. Nobody ordered this. Nobody ordered this. Yeah. And you're like, no, thank you. You're like, I'm going to show you anyway. And, <laughs> and so, but it's, it's, yeah, there's, it's, it comes from the idea that we're not allowed to screw up. And so if we can extend ourselves the grace of being allowed to screw up and do dumb things or say silly, you know, silly things, then, then there becomes room for, then it's not a violation anymore. It just becomes kind of a silly story or a, a, you know, a bad memory. It's not something we're going to love, but, but if we can go a little bit easier on ourselves, then it becomes less visceral. The last major thing I wanted to talk about, we could talk for hours. Oh my gosh, about. Yes. So, so much in this totally. book. And it, clearly you and I have quite a bit in common along yes. these lines too. And, <laughs> and you've, you've dropped a, a couple of references to this too, but you know, I, I've told my listeners I've been in and out of therapy for the last probably 10 years. I'm going you know, in therapy currently um, pretty regularly. And uh, my therapist talks a lot about this perfectionism and we talk a lot about exposure therapy and you codify that a little bit more clearly. And I think more for sort of a lay audience for folks who maybe are not going through therapy. You talk about the challenge list. Yes. Love the challenge list. Give us a couple of examples here. And what's the purpose for folks who, because I imagine there are probably people who've listened or listening to this podcast who have not been through CBT at any sure. point. And so they don't necessarily know what these terms are, but 
anybody can do a challenge list. You don't have to be actively in therapy to execute the ideas of the challenge list that you present in your book. Yes. No, absolutely. It's, it's helpful to be in therapy because then you can get somebody to like hold a mirror up and, you know, tell you, you know, how to, you know, kind of tweak things and also hold you accountable. But absolutely, you can do this on your own. So yes, the challenge list is just kind of a code word for exposure therapy. And in social anxiety, the challenge list is facing your fears. So the, the number one thing that maintains social anxiety is avoidance. So again, that over or that covert avoidance. So the challenge list, which is just a big list of things that you would be doing if you were living the life you wanted to live is the, the purpose is to avoid avoidance is to, is to face the fears. And so what we do is like when I'm working with a client or one can do this on their own is to just to brainstorm a list of things that you would be doing if you weren't socially anxious and then to line them up in order of, you know, how much that, that, that makes you break out into a sweat. So to, to start with the things that are smaller, like perhaps, I mean, this is different for everybody. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the examples I'm about to give could be higher up on a hierarchy for somebody else, but like, it could be like asking a waiter for more ketchup, or it could be, um, like asking somebody to like take their cell phone conversation outside the library. And so that, I mean, actually that would be really hard for me, but, uh, (laughs) then, then we can, we can move up to like kind of the medium things, or then we can move up to the harder things like getting back into dating or asking for a raise or, you know, this like to, to, to line up like eh, 10, 12, you know, maybe 15 things that would be, that, that are concrete. And once you have done them, you can check them off the list. It gives us a real sense of accomplishment and really working our way through our fears. And what that does is when our brain experiences the thing that we've been avoiding, again, it, it takes away those two lies of social anxiety, which is, oh, this was really dangerous. Good thing I avoided that. And <laughs> I couldn't handle that. I wasn't capable. So we work our way through and preferably stay at one level for a little while, like do it a few times, because every time your brain goes through that same experience, both the duration and the intensity of the anxiety will diminish. So you can, the the language I use in the book is you can change that anxiety from mountain to a molehill. And as you do that, you can look and see what are the safety behaviors I'm using. And safety behaviors are just those things that we do to try to keep ourselves safe, but end up backfiring. So if we do, say, ask a waiter for more ketchup, but we avoid eye contact while we're doing it, great, we still did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and next time, let's try to look him in the eye, you know, to, to, like, to look at the little things that we're doing to try to save ourselves and to try to let go of those because really we were safe all along. So that, that is a challenge list. You just reminded me too, because you mentioned this a little bit in the book, because I think you're actually talking about someone else doing this. Um, but I've also had my therapist, my current therapist, others, the idea of doing something basically wrong mm, on yes. purpose, like <laughs> yes. uh, just like asking for ketchup when the ketchup is right there in yes. front of you on the table. That's totally. embarrassing. Right. Like, And I actually have a very hard time with that. The idea of like, if I innocently make the mistake, I still feel stupid. Sure. But the idea of going, doing that on purpose, sure. one feels really not good at all. Yeah. And two, there's a, a a voice in my head that's like, 
Is that really what we're, is that helping? Is that really helping here? So what is your opinion? Does, does that help in making the mistake on purpose to try to confront some of these anxieties? Yeah, well, I think, okay. So I think it can have um, a couple of effects. One is externally to you. So, okay, so for example, I did this by mistake the other day. I asked at uh, the grocery store where I could find the coconut milk and I was literally standing right next to it. It's right in front of you all the time. It was right there. Yes, of course. And, and so the, um, and so the, the, the clerk just like kind of smiled at me Mm -hmm. and pointed and I was like, oh, sorry, I should read labels. And, but at the same time, like, I didn't get kicked out of the store. Nobody. Yeah, you're still at me. here, as I'm it turns here. out. It's fine. I yes, got my nobody. They didn't put you in jail for that. Exactly. Yeah, nobody goes to jail. Nobody gets arrested. Like mildly embarrassing. Like, did I wish I had done that differently? Sure, but like, it's not catastrophic. Our anxieties will. You know, our the, the job of our anxiety is to look to the horizon and find anything that could possibly go wrong. We're trying to keep ourselves safe. Our anxiety is work is there to work for us. It's it's there to keep us safe. However, when we are calibrated, you know, I'm going to mix my metaphors here, when our like burglar alarm is set a little too sensitively, it not only goes off for burglars, it goes off for squirrels or like a stiff breeze you know, or a mm-hmm. shadow, you know, it's like dogs who <laughs> bark at leaves, you know, like blowing by. So we can, uh, we, through experience, we can learn like, oh, that wasn't actually catastrophic. That was a squirrel, <laughs> metaphorically. <laughs> and so I think we can, we learn that the, you know, again, no one's going to yell at us. And then internally, we can learn, oh, I can make a mistake. And that felt kind of lousy, but I survived. Mm-hmm. You know, that was okay. So I think it, I keep referring to the two lies of social anxiety, but I, I think it bears repeating that when we experientially do the thing, we realize that like, oh, that wasn't the worst case scenario didn't happen. And even if it does, you know, we can cope, we can handle it. So yeah, that's my sense of making mistakes. My guest today has been Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. She's the author of the fantastic and obviously very personally valuable to me book, How to Be Yourself. Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. You can find her online at ellenhendrickson.com. That's H-E-N-D-R-I-K-S-E-N. On Twitter, at Ellen Hendrickson, and Instagram, Ellen underscore Hendrickson. Dr. Hendrickson, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. I will try to resume the claw chats, the Q&As on my own website. If I can't do one this week, I will do one next week. It's actually just been a scheduling issue more than anything else. Trying to get those in. In between recording podcasts and trying to get out to games has been a little bit difficult. I have not forsaken you and those will return soon. And if you stumbled upon this podcast but have not read any of my stuff, you can find all my baseball content at The Athletic. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Law on Facebook at Keith Law Writer. I may open some accounts on some of these other social media sites, but I'm not leaving Twitter. A lot of people are making a big deal about leaving Twitter. I understand. I'm still there. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe.